0: Hello folks, it is me again, a Tully show for a second consecutive day. Yesterday it was new music from July of 83. Today we take a look at August. I told you yesterday, I will remind you today, I have made a bonus pod: 25 additional new music releases from the summer of 1983 at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. The debut of Wham! The debut of uh, a, a subgenre of metal that did not really take off, Dominatrix Metal, a band calling themselves Bitch and their debut album *Be My Slave*. Not very successful, not very good, but it did catch the attention of Tipper Gore and made the uh, the famous Filthy Fifteen list of music that was going to corrupt the souls of American youth. That and 23 other new music releases get a seven day. Free trial to check out the best of the rest of July and August '83, and then while you're there for the over the course of the seven days, check out all of the other podcast wonders that await you exclusively at Patreon.com/slash Mike Tully. That is Patreon.com/slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before. and He's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, nice. Your ears, your eyes do not deceive you. Coming to you live on tape for an, I believe, unprecedented second straight day. It is a Christmas miracle coming to you from rapidly gentrifying culver city adjacent california boasting a partially obstructed view of the world famous hollywood sign it is the tully show again i am your host mike tully again yesterday just yesterday we talked in fairly exhaustive detail through the new and noteworthy new music releases from july of 83 and today we're running it back we're rolling straight into august here's the deal folks I gotta get this thing back on track it has always been my intention the conceit of this fairly straightforward fairly obvious i should always be 40 years to the month in the past when we're talking about old new music releases i'm i'm way off of that pace and the only way we're gonna catch up is to double up and i was like hey it's christmas so this is my christmas gift to you we're talking about Kenny Rogers and a bunch of other stuff, but uh, if if you weren't like ooh Kenny Rogers, then you if you didn't have that reaction just now, you probably wouldn't be listening to the show anyway. So we'll talk about well, I would say if I had to um, uh, sort of try to rope a couple of these artists together and give you a central dominant theme it would be um, male singer-songwriters really leading the charge in terms of music that was um, uh, successful um, and that that some people might actually consider good. But before we get to those, I think we need to talk, folks, we need to talk about Kenny Rogers. This was, as far as I can tell, I've done some exhaustive wikipedia on this. I think this was the end of uh, a few eras all at the same time, but going out with a really big bang. So Kenny Rogers had this really weird career, right? Because he was with that band. Was it the first edition, I think, is is who he was with? And they were like a country act, but they were also psychedelic hippies, right? They're the just, just came in to see what condition my condition was in. That's him. Did you know that? That's Kenny Rogers, bro. And then... He got too big for his first edition britches, and so he went solo, and obviously that was a wildly successful career move for him. Um, from from where I sat, little Mikey Tully checking stuff out and in the mid-'80s, it seemed to me the landmark hit, I think we can all agree the landmark hit of his solo career in the 70s was the song The Gambler. <clears throat> and don't sleep on how successful that was. Are you aware of the fact that there was a... Um, there was a series of made-for-TV movies in which Kenny Rogers himself portrayed the titular gambler from... Has there ever been a song? Like, I can think of a couple of... Did Convoy become a movie after they made the song? Obviously, I can think of a lot of movies um, that were uh, named after a song. <laughs> And I suppose if I thought about it, I could think of some movies where the plot is essentially the, the lyrics of a song. But I'm not recommending you watch them. As, as a guy who's only seen the commercials and he has, I think you can probably guess what we're getting here. But Kenny Rogers, the song The Gambler, became four or five made-for-TV movies. The man was a brand unto himself. He was like one of the most trusted, liked people in America um, by even in the the mid '80s, like '85, '86, like People Magazine or Reader's Digest or one of those real milk toast middle of the road um, soccer mom publications, he he was still ranked as the most popular singer in America, like. I don't know if you folks are familiar with Kenny Rogers Roasters, which was um, a mildly, I think successful chain of um, rotisserie chicken that popped up in the nineties. We were blessed to have, uh, um, I don't want to brag. We had a Kenny Rogers Roasters location, several, if I'm being honest, near the house. And, uh, it was pretty solid chicken if you, I don't believe it's around anymore, but in its heyday, if you really wanted some, some quality rotisserie chicken at a reasonable price, and there was not a Boston market closer than the closest ready, uh, Kenny Rogers Roasters, it was everything, it was everywhere you wanted to be. Like think, who? what other singer could have There's only one person who comes to mind who could possibly just be like, yeah, put their name on a chicken place and people are going to want to go there and they're going to trust that the food is going to be like delicious and a good deal and it's not going to make them sick. The whole family gets excited about it. The only other person I can think of who probably could have pulled off the exact same trick is the person with whom Kenny Rogers duetted on his last big smash song I'm speaking of. Islands in the Stream, which came out in August of 1983. Now, as I mentioned, this was, I believe, the end of the road for—I'm going to say—for four different, uh, pretty big pop cultural phenomenons. First of all, I know Kenny Rogers had um, a top 15 hit after this, but I don't even recognize the title of it. So, whereas Islands in the Stream was gigantic, right? I—if—if if Dolly Parton. Had a really big hit song. Now I know, like you know, Whitney Houston covered "I Will Always Love You." Obviously, Dolly remains. Um, I mean, she was a Dallas cowgirl like three weeks ago. Dolly has always been huge, but in terms of actually being um, a, a, an artist with hit songs on the pop, not country charts, because Kenny Rogers continued making country hits, and Dolly did. I'm sure. I believe. This had to be the last number one that either of them were associated with. This was the last song. Technically, this song entered the charts um, as a a country song. And um, it was the last, because there was that whole country crossover thing, you know, spearheaded by Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton through the mid-70s into the very early 80s. You could have a mainstream pop hit With a pretty purely country song, which I would not say Islands in the stream is, but they were just associated with. They were country artists, ergo, when they did a song, it was a country song. This was the last country song that went number one in the charts until the pop country stuff started happening in this century. Also, so the Bee Gees. Had reached the pinnacle of fame with uh, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. They became sort of a victim of their own success. They were so strongly associated with disco that when disco died, it pretty much killed the BJs, the Bee Gees with it. But as you may know, Barry Gibb, it, it's so funny. Like the disco artists just had to, you know, Donna Summer just needed to rebrand herself and make stuff that was pretty similar to disco, but they just needed to get enough of the disco stink off of it for it to be uh, palatable to an, uh, to an audience that felt they had moved past disco. Well, Barry Gibb and the BG Brothers, the three of them, continued writing songs for other artists and producing songs for other artists that when you listen to them are like very obviously... Bee Gees songs and very often Barry sang backup vocals on them. You could hear him on the recording, but it just it wasn't the Bee Gees. It didn't have the Bee Gees stink on it. My favorite of those songs is Heartbreaker, the song that um that Barry wrote for Dionne Warwick and sang the backup vocals on. Once you know who wrote it, you're like, oh, of course, this is a Bee Gees song that Dionne Warwick happens to be singing. The same applies to this. Barry Gibb. Wrote this song. Kenny Rogers had the amazing, I'm sure he's a really easy guy to get along with. Like I said, there's a reason he had the chicken chain. He, um, as he moved out of being a, a pure country artist crossing over to the mainstream, became more of a straightforward pop artist. He struck up. I forget the reasons why struck up a friendship with Lionel Richie and they were like writing songs and trading songs and lady and all that stuff was, uh, was the fruit of their collaboration. And I gather Kenny Rogers opened, um, he bought and renovated a recording studio that became this go-to place in Los Angeles. Like they recorded half of, we are the world at Kenny Rogers own recordings because it wasn't just his own personal studio. It was like a place that he used, but that was open for business for everybody for everybody else. So Kenny Rogers along the way in the early eighties also strikes up a relationship, a friendship with Barry Gibb, and they talk about working together. Kenny's like, let me do one of your songs. Barry's like, let me do a whole album with you. And by all accounts, I'm sure you could find this demo online. Barry makes a demo of this song and they were, the people who made the album were like kind of blown away that Kenny Rogers as a professional singer seemed like he did sort of the the sort of the Dean Martin school of I know how to do this I've done this a billion times. They said Kenny Rogers had had plenty of time to practice the songs but was literally like holding the lyric sheet in front of his eyes while he sang these songs and all he was doing really was uh, was mimicking the, the exact vocal lines that Barry Gibb did on the demo that he gave in presenting the song to Kenny Rogers. But obviously it worked out uh, more than well enough. So I believe this is the last the last moment of peak Kenny, the last moment of peak Dolly as a mainstream hit maker. It's the last country crossover number one for like 20 years it's the last number one as far as i can tell for barry gibb and the bg's larger hit making machine all of those things um as i said go out with a bang with this gigantic number one song released in august of 83 islands in the street that is what we are Although I think we can all agree that is a pretty terrible, horribly cheesy song. Don't sleep on the durability of uh, at least the raw meat of the song, the hook of it, which of course was uh, resurrected and refashioned and repopularized by pros of the Fugees on, I believe his, certainly his biggest, if not only solo hit, Ghetto Superstar uh, in the early 2000s featuring the legendary Maya on the hook. Uh, moving on, I mentioned we're gonna be focusing on some pretty big ticket male singer songwriter dudes who were uh, uh firing on all or close to all cylinders here in august of nineteen eighty three don't sleep on the run that Billy Joel had I guess nobody is sleeping on the run that Billy Joel had but it's it was it was ridiculous the guy I can't even remember a period of time where he he made an album that like flopped from. So, you know, he was in some ludicrous metal band. Go find the photos. It's awesome. Didn't work out. He goes off. He's playing piano in a sleazy little bar. He writes a little song about it. You might have heard it. He gets another record deal instantly. You know, well, no, 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 not instantly, because I think we talked about on this show that he released that um, when he when he finally started having solo hits, there were so many songs that he felt were worthy of being hits from the, uh, the albums that had preceded them that hadn't sold very well. He did live versions of all of those. And then, um, just like kiss with the, Alive records, a couple of bands I can think of have done this. He, 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 he resurrected those songs and, and popularized them later on by virtue, uh, by virtue of releasing live versions. Anyway, once it's stuck for Billy Joel, it stuck hard and something that is, um, easy to overlook about Billy Joel is I I don't think he ever once he started making hit albums I don't think he ever had an album that was less than insanely successful just like I'm gonna quote I'm gonna quote the um, iconic Kenny Rogers song Billy Joel knew when to walk away so I believe I'm not mistaken the album River of Dreams which had three including the title track three four really big hits on it was the last album he recorded he has literally not released i think he's put out some classical stuff but he has not released even an attempt at music in the pop format since that he just dropped the mic and walked away and we find him here pretty much right in the middle of his creative zenith he releases the album an innocent man it sells seven million copies um, it was an homage to uh, a bunch of styles of music that had been popular when Billy Joel was a kid. As he said, he'd, he'd been married and, and he was he got divorced and this was the first time he was a rock star and single, and he enjoyed that for all it was worth. I didn't I knew obviously he dated Christy Brinkley. He ended up marrying her. Um, I didn't know he also dated a young Elle McPherson. So man man what being good at what being a piano man did for billy joel's dating life because he was uh he was like a a, a one a, a one man personal guarantee of being an odd couple with any beautiful woman and yet he dated uh so many of them and married at least one so here we are in August of 1983. Also, not a guy who's like tailor-made for MTV. I'm again referring to his general face situation. And yet there was something that was just so um so so likable, so lovable about this dude. And um, that was on prominent display in the music video for this song. There's three huge hits from this album, at least. There's an innocent man, there's Tell her about it, and uh, there is this song right here. I've always weirdly respected that song so much because, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I guess I don't have, like, a connoisseur's insider taste of uh, 50s and 60s pop. But, like, there's not a ton of depth to pop music before, you know, like, the Beatles. And uh, But I heard that stuff all the time growing up. I'm sure you had an oldie station wherever you grew up. But I felt like it was an especially big deal where I was and we had, you know, cousin Brucey and those people. And I think the number one rated music station in the New York, New Jersey area pretty, pretty consistently was what it was, CBS, FM. And my mom had grown up on that stuff. And she'd tell me how stories about how being in the same pizzeria as Frankie Valley in the four seasons when she was in high school. So I was like, whether I wanted to be or not, I was fairly immersed in that kind of crap. And I honestly think that Uptown Girl is it's one thing to uh to say oh this is the stuff that i grew up on i'd like to try to write one like that and then it's another thing to to do it and have you know the general reaction be oh wow yeah that's like pretty good I, that probably maybe could have been a hit i feel like that sounds exactly like the stuff it is imitating and yet is one of the best examples of it like i think he actually wrote an a plus version of the music that he grew up on. Whether or not you like that music is a different story, but for what he was attempting to do, I think Billy Joel knocked it out of the fucking park. So, moving on to our next male singer-songwriter, Elvis Costello released an album in August of 83 called Punch the Clock, and... Elvis Costello has always been super respected and people with excellent tasted music fawn over him. And he may have even had some mainstream success in the UK, but by August of 1983, I think early in his career, he'd been like knocking on the door of commercial success. And as he got more like artistic and, uh, you know, the stuff became more poetic. He was like, tr- he'd never been a huge hit maker, but he was trending even further away from that. He was trending in the wrong direction. And it, it had gotten to the point where the record label was like, bro, we kind of need some hits here. Look at Billy Joel, for example. Why can't you be more like him? And so Elvis Costello did, by his own admission, make a a, a, a concerted effort to write at least one hit song. He said, I just made it a songwriting exercise. What if, I just, what if I just crank out something that sounds like a hit song? And it did not work in the sense that I don't believe this song even, I'll check to see if it was even in the top 40. But I do think he succeeded in writing very, just like Billy Joel, what he was trying to do, this little songwriting exercise, he completely knocked it out of the park. I like Elvis Costello. I don't consider myself a big fan. I am a big fan of this song personally, you don't have to agree with me, but just as a fan of pop music, this is actually my personal favorite Elvis Costello song, and it came out in August of 83. Jack- on bro so good so good so yeah that song peaked at uh number 36 on the charts shame on you america that should have at least been a top 10 such a flipping good song one more singer songwriter jackson brown is a guy who's around in la in the 70s consummate singer songwriter guy well even before that he was like Teenager and dating Nico And wrote some you know wrote all Both of her greatest solo songs I think that's not a controversial statement And then after their <coughs> Creative and personal Relationship fizzles out He's in LA and he's Rubbing shoulders like living next door To the Eagles pre-fame And he like writes with them and he's kind of like An Eagles adjacent guy and then obviously He has a number of um, of Solo successes and the 70s makeway. For the 80s, he does the song for the Fast Times at Ridgemont High soundtrack, Somebody's Baby. And then in August of 83, dude, just uh, 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 the day that I'm taping this, yesterday, there was a thing on Reddit. You ever just want to scream at the comment section on your phone where um, just somebody asked the question, what are some forgotten or overlooked 80s songs that should be classics? And this, like... This is my wheelhouse, and I'm, I'm I'm looking at stuff, and there's some that I'm like, I don't really know how forgotten that is, and that one, I'm like, eh, it's not that great, and just off the top of my head, I'm like, there's 10 other fucking songs that, sorry if there's children in the car, I get fired up when I talk about Jackson Brown, you knew this about me when you started the pod, there's like 10 songs off the top of my head that, um, that, that certainly meet that criteria. Well, I mean, the Elvis Costello song, I think most people with decent taste in music are familiar with that, even if it wasn't a hit. On uh, yesterday's show, I did the, the the Paul Young song that I think is really good. This song from Jackson Brown, to me, totally fits into that category. I find this song really intriguing. I came across it a couple of years ago. And there's a certain kind of song where there's these people who were, like, part of the the rock... The rock culture, the counterculture—you know, were around for the idealism of the the '60s and watched it, you know, slowly change into the '70s, the me generation, and by the time eight, the '80s come along, and we're into, um, you know, the movie Wall Street and 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 Rambo and yuppies and and all of these classic rock guys like wanted to make their statement song about how sure now you got a fancy car but you sold your soul in the process whatever happened to peace, love and understanding bro and almost all of those songs to me uh, felt sanctimonious and just came up a little bit short Uh, Don Henley's Boys of Summer I'm not sure if that's exactly what it's about That, that to me would be an example of a song that I think works on that level but this is another I think this is one of the great forgotten unknown whatever you want to call it classics of the 1980s it's a it's a consummately um 80s song about a very 80s topic Uh, if you've never heard it before enjoy jackson brown and lawyers in love Right, 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 not bad, not bad, right? So we have two more August 83 new music releases from um, artists that that are bands, they're not solo artists, but each, I think, uh, is strongly identified with the front man of the band. Um, The first of which I want to mention is the Stray Cats. I I think the Stray Cats had two album run of, of actually making um successful songs when did they break up i don't feel like they were around for that long anyway they obviously you know had their initial success and this album was received as um more of the same basically which was not a bad thing that if it's not broke don't fix it and the album rant and rave with the stray cats featured a couple of noteworthy songs probably most prominently this song whose title nobody would be messing around with in 2023 or 2024 she's sexy in 17 from the stray cats well she's the only girl in this whole world Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's the same, it's the same thing as my take on the blues. Like, you could just sing. He, they could literally go out on stage, in my opinion, and just do that groove the entire time, and they would never need to stop. And he could just sing one song and then the next one and rock this town, and, you know, great. It's, uh, you know, obviously the, the, The like hot rod 50s revivalism thing. They were in on the ground floor of that. So they were in the right place at the right time. And I I know they have their super fans. Our, Our friend Mark McGrath has mentioned his favorite guitar player of all time is Brian Setzer. For me, a little of that goes a long way, but to each their own. Look at me. I'm a guy who's about to tell you how much I like this um, fairly embarrassing song from a band called XTC. Now, I've, I've brought up XTC before uh, their album. Skylarking to me is one of the great albums. Yeah, full stop. Um, I've done on, on my Patreon, I did a whole pod about these guys. It's just, it's not for everybody. It's, if you, if you, like I don't know, they're not all that similar to the Smiths. So XTC is this band from um it's a it's a pop guitar band from England. You might know their songs making plans for Nigel Census Working Overtime. After the initial slightly more power poppy thing, they they moved into something more um a little bit more kinder and 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 gentler and i actually prefer the later era stuff which is really kind of starting with the album they released in august of 83 which is called mummer it's just not for everybody but if you're into the the smiths and cure and that area of 80s uk uh, um you know alt landscape then then if you don't know about this band, you do need to know about this band. Um, I, uh, I, I, I love this song. This is, I think, this is, this is one of my favorite bands, and I think it's one of their best songs. And I, I know it's not for everybody, but it came out in August of '83, and here it is: Love on a Farm Boy's Wages. My darling, so my darling. The who brings the sheep. Yeah, man. I am as God made me. All right, let's uh let's let's do this up a little bit and move on to the metal new releases of August 83, because they were th- at least three uh noteworthy examples. ACDC released their third album with Brian Johnson. Back in Black, obviously, fairly successful. The album after that, for those about to rock, less successful, but still uh multi-platinum. This album was a further decline from that. And it would be a minute until you would have thought that that was just the end th- th- their brand of, um, seventies, early eighties rock. To me, it, it, it seems like it would have had a, uh, a time limit on it. And yet so, sometimes, sometimes just being very good, sometimes quality does win out. And even though they, they, um, f- uh, visually, were a bit of an odd fit alongside the hair Farmers on Headbangers Ball in the late 80s. Obviously, they had a massive comeback with the Razor's Edge album that had um, Money Talks and, more importantly, Thunderstruck. But here in 1983, they released an album called Flick of the Switch that uh, didn't do especially well, but featured this fairly well-known hit. In August of 83, not one but two metal bands who would soon enjoy massive success each released small, independent EPs. First of all, Queensryche had been gigging around the Seattle area, mainly doing covers under the name The Mob, and they joined forces with lead singer Jeff Tate, wrote some originals got some shitty jobs, scrimped and saved, booked some overnight hours in a local studio, and produced a four-song recording which would land them a major label deal and which featured one song which would be a staple of their live set for years to come. Oh, People get angry every time I call them a hair metal band, so let's just say hair metal meets Iron Maiden with a little bit of a a prog rock, Dungeons and Dragons lyrical angle. Um, Whatever you want to call it, that was Queensryche, who released their debut EP the same month that Rat released theirs. Before Tony Catane was writhing on the hood of a car in the White Snake video for Here I Go Again, she was featured on the cover of not one but two rat releases, at least in the case of that EP. Her leg, her fishnet stockinged leg, covered appropriately enough with a bunch of albino rats on the self titled Rat EP that came out in August of 83. Meanwhile, the progressive rock pop crossover supergroup asia released their second album and they had um you know a bunch of guys that have been playing prog rock to there's a, there was a ceiling on how far you could go with that and there was a definite ceiling to how many girls you could get to come to your show so a bunch of these guys were finally like at the end of their ropes playing prog uh prog stuff and there's more than one example of um guys from 70s prog bands uh, uh, taking the moonshot at a more pop approach here in the early 80s. Asia had massive success. Their first album, I think, had not one but two big hit songs. But here, here's the problem. When you have a super group, you have a bunch of people who are already really accomplished in their own right, who are compromising for the good of the team, and there's egos involved. And the problem was the first album did produce hits, and the record label likes hits and looked at the album and said hmm it seems like these one or two guys wrote all the hits and those two or three guys didn't write any of them so here's the deal this time around the guys who wrote the hits are gonna write the whole album, which is a sound commercial uh, strategy, but it doesn't necessarily make for a a friendly, warm, and jovial recording environment once you try to execute that. It did work to a limited extent, though the album still went platinum and um, it produced one top 10 hit. Number 10 to be specific here is Asia and Don't Cry. Now, obviously, I personally am a pretty big fan of 80s music, and there's a pretty good chance that you are too if you're listening to this. But obviously, um, ever since the 80s began, 80s has sort of been a a buzzword for bad, for flashy, for shticky, for kitschy, all style, no substance, and the style's pretty shitty to begin with. And although I I don't think this is a, a terrible song, if you wanted to pick one song that is the absolute epitome of like the the mom or the dad who grew up on classic rock and now have this child sitting on their couch watching MTV and the generation gap, if you call this music, if you wanted to have the one band that best encapsulates that moment where parent in the 80s looked at child and was like i seriously don't know i don't even know what you are thinking if you think this is good (sighs) there'd be a lot of nominees let's be honest but i uh, the band who might take the cake in that um not very auspicious regard might well be kajagoogoo the name didn't help. Let's be honest. So, uh, in in eighty three, uh, Duran Duran is at peak at the peak of their powers, and Duran Duran keyboardist Nick Rhodes does a solid for his friend. He'd been a waiter pre fame, and he literally knew somebody from Kajagoogoo from waiting tables alongside them, and. Uh, let's face it he was right the song was a massive success so nick rhodes along with duran duran's producer um they developed and produced an album from kajakugu that produced this uh, may not be good but it is an unforgettable 80s hit hey girl move a little closer On the far more credible side of UK synth-pop in August of 1983, I think this would probably be the point where you would say Depeche Mode assumed their final form if you have even a a casual knowledge of the band you probably know early on Vince Clark was a member of the band he would later go on to start Yazoo and then Erasure and there's a song or two from there that I don't think uh, I I think hardcore Depeche Mode fans are a little bit, bit embarrassed of it was more of a shiny happy pop thing by the time we get to the album construction time again uh, Depeche Mode is is very serious and showing very little emotion and sounding like um, the Depeche Mode who uh, would go on to have massive MTV hits. Depeche Mode is playing at, what's it called? The Crypto.com Arena. I don't think anything could make Staples Center sound respectable, but down the road, the I mean, they I think because of the, the K-Rock phenomenon, a lot of these bands have always been way bigger in LA than they were elsewhere in the States. But in 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 2023, Depeche Mode is headlining not one but two nights at our local arena where the Lakers play, and this is the album I think where they really start to sound like the band that that their fans would come to know and love. There they are. When I was growing up, every one of my friends, cooler, older sisters who wouldn't talk to us shitheads favorite band, Depeche Mode. Well, folks, we've got one more song to enjoy together and then I will make my leave. But but fret not, I've made this mega B-side show. All of this stuff and there are a, a lot of them all the stuff that didn't make the big show the main show from both July and August of 83 are over there on my Patreon. And I'd love for you to come check it out um, in order to do so. Uh, just sign up for the the seven day free trial, no obligation. And after you do that, you can not just listen to that show. You can listen to everything else I've done this week, all the year end pods and everything else I've done for the last three years. There's hundreds and hundreds of pods for you to enjoy in Patreon exclusive Fashion, something for everyone. I absolutely guarantee you. I hope you go check that out. If not, I will see you here next time and I will leave you with this. So, last time on the show I posted yesterday, Metallica release Kill Em All, which obviously features the song Seek and Destroy, which we played on the show. Not too long before that, Metallica had toured with the more established metal band called Raven, who you may have heard of. So and um so Metallica's album, which came out in July, had a song called Seek and Destroy. Raven who toured with Metallica shortly before this, put out an album in August of 83 with a song called Seek and Destroy. And I am not sure the chronology of of who had their song first, and obviously there was, a, you know, the Iggy Pop song Seek and Destroy came out 10 years, 15 years before any of this. But it is a pretty odd coincidence that two bands who toured together shortly thereafter each released a song with the same title. I don't know who it is, but somebody's got some explaining to do here it is raven and their song entitled seek and destroy enjoy thanks folks enjoy your holiday uh, week weekend and i will see you soon